It has never been easier to keep in touch, and it has never been harder to make friends. In a way, we have, uh, in, in the age of Facebook, more tools at our disposal for quick touches with people that are really enriching to our lives. And, and uh, it, it has enriched my life. It has um, deepened the ministry of the church, actually, to be able to reach people so quickly and uh, with mobility that wherever you go, all of your friends are. And you can keep in touch with them much more quickly and, and easily than ever before. And yet, there is a superficiality that has been creeping into our lives in our relationships. And, and it's one of these frog-in-the-kettle things where the, the water gets hotter and hotter and the atmosphere of our relationships changes more and more uh, but it's not perceptible. It's not like you can, you can say it was 5% worse today than it was yesterday, my relationships. It's not that kind of thing. We just have come to a place as a society where our friendships are impoverished. We have many superficial relationships. We have fewer and fewer deeply healthy relationships. We make friends fast, but we don't make very many fast friends. You know that old phrase, fast friend. It actually speaks of something different from speed. Through Facebook, uh, you can... Friend somebody. In fact, I, it was uh, I, this was in no way intentional. But uh, I guess at one point this week it was Friends Day on Facebook, so you could celebrate how how many friends you have. And uh, and yet, Facebook is notoriously uh, a cause of depression. Have you heard about this? That uh, Facebook. Uh, people often shut down Facebook more depressed than when they opened it up. And you can see why. Because there's no better way to feel left out than to look at what everybody else is doing or what they appear to be doing. To look at the pleasure they have or the pleasure they appear to have. And so when, when we put ourselves out there on Facebook or Instagram or any one of these places. We're always putting out there the best that we have, the biggest smile from the best kind of angle. I don't know when the last time was that you posted your grieving selfie or your mourning selfie. I haven't seen one of those recently. And yet we do a lot more of that than maybe we want people to know about. And so Facebook is this kind of alternate universe where everybody else is just having this marvelous time doing all of this amazing stuff. And all of these compliments are going back and forth that are so... I mean, you can't just say, hey, nice shirt or I like that jacket. You can't say that on Facebook or Instagram. You have to say... You look amazing. You have to put some of the words, some of the letters in all caps so that it's that much more expressive. And now, one emoji is not enough. You have to express more. You need five smiley faces. You need tears of joy on your emojis or it's just, it's not positive enough. Why do we need this much reassurance? Are we that insecure? We are. It's, it's kind of bad. Uh, so there's this paradox with Facebook that we have more access to each other easier than ever before, and yet the depth is not there. I mentioned that the phrase fast friend is an old phrase. And the word fast is not talking about speed it's talking about stickiness. 
A fast friend is the friend who sticks fast, who holds fast to the loyalty of the friendship. And uh, I've been having some discussions in some of our small groups about this issue, just kind of taking the temperature on this. And what was very striking to me in all the discussions I've had with some of you about this is the level of pain that comes out even bringing this up. So the pain comes from either a feeling like, I am isolated, no one cares about me, no one really wants to know what I'm going through, no one listens to me, all the way to the level of no one actually understands me, no one gets me. I have to explain, defend myself all the time for the way I feel to the people around me. Where is that, that fast friendship where I don't have to explain myself? The other person just gets it. Where is that relationship? Uh, and uh, sometimes the pain uh, is, is coming from uh, past relationships where we did have that. And it blew up. We lost friends. Friends betrayed us, stabbed us in the back, whatever it may be. Betrayed that trust and loyalty and intimacy so that with every new relationship, we're always just kind of holding back a little bit. We're a little more guarded than we were five years ago, a lot more guarded than we were ten years ago, perhaps, because stuff happens. And you see what people are capable of. And so friendship has become almost a kind of danger zone. And so when we read Proverbs 17.17, these words can seem rather foreign to us. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. We're going to spend eight weeks on this topic between now and Holy Week. We're going to talk about friendship. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to try to get our hands around what does the Bible say a friendship really is? How do we define it scripturally? We're also going to uh, explore the scriptures and especially Proverbs more about the importance of friendship. Why does this matter? It might seem like a frivolous topic for a church to talk about. But I'm actually convinced, based on conversations that I've been having with people uh, over the years, that people are dying for lack of friends. We live in spirals of anxiety and depression that God never intended for us to endure. Because he has provided us with this ballast of friendship. And when we talk about friendship in the body of Christ, now we're talking about something that is empowered by, matched up by, ruled by the Holy Spirit. And that is something that raises this to a whole other level. Um, And really, I believe that one of the main hindrances in this church and in many churches, hindrances to effective, powerful ministry, is a lack of deep, warm, godly friendship. So we're going to talk about this. We will also talk about conflict with friends. How do you have a conflict, which everybody does, every friendship does, how do you go through that tension and come out stronger on the other side rather than watching the friendship break up over that kind of conflict? So all of these things we're going to be discussing over the next couple of months beginning with this proverb. This morning we're just going to dive into this proverb and raise a bunch of questions that I believe this proverb raises. So let's look at some of the words that this this proverb gives about that constant, fast friend. Uh, What are some of the terms used in this proverb? 
Um, it was uh, interesting when I started looking at this. I kind of expect now that a, a proverb is going to use an unusual word because a lot of times uh, the, a proverb will use something that is rare in the scriptures to say something unusual or put a different spin or twist on, on an issue. But in this case, Proverbs 17.17 17 is full of ordinary words that raise big questions. Here are four of them. And we start with the word friend itself. This word is a very common word throughout the scriptures. It's almost like wallpaper. It's a broad word. All of these terms in this proverb are broad. They take in a lot of territory. And in this case, it can often be a, a good question whether you should translate the, the word here friend or neighbor. Because it can mean both. So let's just take both of those senses of the word here. Your, your neighbor is someone who's close to you, someone who lives near you. What they do, the way they live, how they keep their house, where they keep their cars, all of that kind of stuff affects you. So your life is tied to your neighbor more closely than it is with somebody across town. So in the scriptures, we're talking about living in, in small villages here or, or even, even the cities would be considered small by our standards. So everybody knows everybody else and if you're a neighbor, that means you have a lot of access to someone else's life. So there's that sense of the word, but it doesn't really fit here because it's actually not true that a neighbor loves at all times, is it? Uh, sometimes it's quite the reverse. So in this case, we're, we're translating it friend because this is now one step closer. This is not just the person who lives near you or next door to you or you cross paths with them every single day. This is the person who has access emotionally to you. They, uh, they know you. They know your story. They know some of your secrets. Maybe they know all of your secrets. This friend is somebody whose life and emotional life is tied to you at a very deep level. They're not your spouse necessarily, although we'll talk about that. Uh, you can have a friend who is not a spouse. Uh, this is, a, a, nevertheless, a person who has a great deal of impact on your well-being. If they handle your story and your secrets safely, well, that's going to be a good friendship. That's going to be uh, something that encourages you, strengthens you. But if that friend is not safe, then what? Devastation? Feelings of betrayal, feelings of judgment, like this person who knows me, judges me worse than people who don't know me at all. Now, that kind of feeling can be disabling for us. And so if we just take this much that we learn from this word friend, if we just even take the word neighbor, how are we doing on that? One of the big complaints that we have about our culture now is that we don't know our neighbors. And it's true. Uh, and there are many reasons for it. And if you go down the list of those reasons, you're, you're kind of going down a list of all the reasons why we really kind of distrust people. And it's the stereotypical thing. You, you drive into your driveway, you open the garage door, you drive in and the garage door comes down, you get out of your car and you, you would never even see the person across the street because they're doing the same thing. So we have built homes that are a little bit fortress-like. What's right out in front of our homes? Garages. What used to be out in front of our homes? Porches. You have access to a porch. Maybe, maybe you're out there on the porch 
in the evening. And so this has become kind of a cliche criticism of our society that we just don't live the same way with our neighbors as we used to. But if you're like me, um, the, the main reason isn't the, the way the neighborhood is set up or the way the houses are built. It's just, I'm busy. There's lots to do. Many, many demands. And so if I set foot outside of my house, it means I'm going somewhere to do something for or with someone. And there's, there's expectation there. There's, um, there's a responsibility there. And so I'm not just sort of going out of my house just to take in the fresh air. And we're all kind of living this way. And uh, it has even another effect. It used to be that um, uh, you could evangelize uh, and take the gospel out into a neighborhood by going and knocking on doors. It used to be that you could uh, uh, sell your wares that way. I'll, I'll just tell you what, this, this is a generational thing, I'm sure. But um, anybody who knocks on my door had better have a good reason. Isn't that the mentality that we have now? Why are you coming up to my door? Um, you know, what, this is terrible here. The pastor is confessing this, but, you know, what's the agenda here? What are you selling? You better have a good reason, because I don't know you, but yet here you are on my doorstep. Well, why do we feel that way? One, home is a refuge from the schedule. So coming up to the door is making a demand on time, right? And we don't have time because it's all, it's all spoken for. So if you put all of this together, you, you've got a way of living that is withdrawn from the people closest to us in a way that it never would have been even, even 30 years ago. And then it's, it's kind of like Oh, look, really tired. I'd like to talk to you, but would you please just go away? Because this is my shelter from everything that's going on out there in the world. And I don't want you to think that you can just come into that shelter anytime you want. There's another reason it's dangerous. Uh, remember when we first moved into the neighborhood that we're in now, word started to circulate about uh, uh, houses being cased for home invasions by uh, people posing as uh, door-to-door salespeople. And so, you know, rumor goes around like that in a neighborhood. What happens to all the front doors? Well, you're going to latch that bolt if you haven't done it already. If you don't habitually do it, you're definitely going to do it after you hear a rumor like that. So forget about close, intimate friends. Let's just talk neighbors. It's pretty limited, and it's pretty standoffish, guarded, suspicious. Okay, so there's another word in this verse. A friend loves at all. All times, loves. Big word. This word uh, can cover any form of human love. Um, In fact, if you turn this verb to love, if you turn it into a noun in Hebrew, you get either a word for a close, intimate friend or a word for an adulterer, people who share love that is illicit. Um, And there's not... A connection there, it's just other than uh, you're sharing love. Now, even to talk this way in our day and age where um, male friendships are already kind of on this borderline, what does that friendship mean? What might it mean for two men to express love for each other in a candid, straightforward, unembarrassed, unselfconscious way? Well, it's very simple. It doesn't happen very often. 
Because it is self-conscious, it usually is embarrassed, and for obvious reasons. There are all sorts of meanings layered onto uh, the expression of affection between men and other men, women and other women. And it has affected the way we think about friendships. It has affected even the way we touch each other, giving hugs or coming along, putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, all of these things, there are question marks over all of them in a way that it didn't used to be. So this word love, a friend loves at all times. There, in, in this proverb, it is saying there is a constancy to the expression of love, goodwill, blessing, strength, encouragement, and all the expressions of that, physical, conversational, emotional, everything is, is, is tied up into this word's big word. A friend loves at all times. Another big word, generic word, it can refer to any kind of happening, event, occurrence. So, no matter what is going on, good times, bad times, a friend loves. There is a constancy there. There is a loyalty there. I'd like you to turn with me to an example of this in the scriptures. Uh, let's go to Second Samuel chapter 7. I just want to touch down on a couple of famous spots here. Second Samuel chapter 7. That's why it doesn't make sense. I'm in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Second Samuel 7, 1. Now when the king, this is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You're looking at one of the great friendships of the Bible here. There is a closeness between David and this man, Nathan the prophet. So that whenever David wants to talk about what's on his mind about his own future, the future of the kingdom, what's going on in his family, you see Nathan right there. And um, at this moment, the Lord is going to kind of make a good news, bad news move with David. He's going to say, bad news is you're not going to build a temple for my name. Good news is I'm going to build a house for you. It's going to be eternal. Your son, David, is going to reign on your throne forever. You are going to father the Messiah. Who delivers that news? Nathan. This man is an intimate of David. And he knows all kinds of secrets about David. He knows David's story. And David has many relationships like this. Not, um, not so many that we know about uh, as much as with Nathan here. But he's had a, a fast friendship with uh, uh, the former crown prince, Jonathan, whom he displaced. They maintained a fast friendship that was focused on the Lord. He's, he has other working relationships that are close with a, a man named Gad. He has working relationships with uh, Levites and the high priest and the choir masters, uh, as we looked at a few weeks ago. David cultivates these close working relationships. Um, now, Nathan is a friend there, in a very good season, a season of victory, prosperity, and blessing, where Nathan delivers this news. The Lord is going to raise up your son, David, and he's going to be the Messiah. 
Nathan is also a friend in bad times. Chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has committed adultery and fathered a child with Bathsheba to cover it up. You know the story. He murdered Bathsheba's husband and corrupted his chain of command in doing so. All of these things happened in chapter 11. You would think that God might have uh, the sort of relationship with David that God himself would bust into his palace with his own voice and say, David, you have sinned against me. God could do that. The Lord has given prophecy through David many times in the past. He could have done that. But instead, the Lord sends a messenger. Who does he send? Nathan. He tells David's friend. Why? Because David's going to need his friend. Nathan goes into David, tells him the famous proverb about a rich man who steals a sheep or requisitions it from a poor man and slaughters it. David says, what a horrible guy. And Nathan's job at that moment is to say, you are that guy. You did that. Now, you want to get unfriended on Facebook, just do that. Go to your friend and say, I saw what you did there. You know how wrong that was? You know how disrespectful that was? And and maybe it's about a third party. You you just go and say, look, you've got to turn away from that. So a friend delivering that kind of news at any time, but especially today, the reply is likely to be, well, you're supposed to be supportive. I thought you were my friend. Not acknowledging that a friend loves at all times. And at some times in life, there is sin that we need to turn from, and the only person we can really truly rely on is the person who will say, you're that guy, you're doing this, and you need to turn from it. I want you to notice that that is not all Nathan says to David. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 13, David, after uh, having the boom lowered on him by his friend, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. You are headed into a time of grief. Now you might say that that was obviously the end of that friendship because that's just what happens. You know, friends reach a point where they can't agree about something or something just gets too hard. And so they part ways because it just didn't work out. One time I was at a wedding and at the dinner... After the wedding, a woman who I didn't know turned to me and said, So, what do you think the odds are? And it was one of those moments where I just realized my concept of what just happened here is worlds away from where you are. Because this ain't about odds. This isn't about statistics. Whether a marriage works out or a friendship works out is not a matter of events 
just sort of randomly taking it one direction or another. It's about decisions. We make decisions about our relationships. And the fruit of those decisions, the odds, just for whatever reason, didn't happen to come through for us. That's not what happens. The fruit of our decisions is the fruit of perhaps sin and inconstancy. In this case, the question is, does it work out for David and Nathan? Nathan is a friend who loves at all times. Uh, Bathsheba gives birth to a baby. The baby dies, according to Nathan's word. Look at verse 24 of 2 Samuel 12. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Solomon. That's the guy who's talking to us out of Proverbs 17, 17, right? That guy. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by who? By Nathan, the prophet. So David called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord, loved by the Lord. Nathan's still involved. In the middle of all of that grief, Nathan is still there. Even though Nathan has been, to some extent, a bringer of bad news, Nathan is still there. Even when his friend, the king, is an adulterer and a murderer, and getting what he deserves, Nathan is still there. A friend loves at all. All times. Um, Let's return to that proverb, chapter 17, verse 17. Final word is the word adversity. Again, another big word takes in a lot of territory. Uh, When you're in trouble, who is there with you? We're going to comment on the the word brother here in a moment, but let's just look at that word adversity and ask the question, did Nathan stick with David and Bathsheba even through, did did their friendship survive the death of a baby and the birth of a new one? Did it, uh, was he a fast friend? Look at 1 Kings chapter 1. David is very old. He can't even get out of bed. He can't even keep himself warm. So he's old and sick. He's coming down to the end of his reign. And one of his sons, Adonijah, is scheming to capture the throne from Solomon. Who is it who brings word to David, you need to do something? And to whom does he go to bring that word? Look at 1 Kings 1.11. Nathan is aware of Adonijah's conspiracy to snatch the kingdom. Then David, Nathan rather, said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, hang on, how are they still on speaking terms? Because it was Nathan who brought word that Bathsheba's son, her first son with David, was going to die. How are they still talking? Want to know how? Fast friendship. Nathan is there. He loves at all times. And so as David and Bathsheba are entering another period, yet another period of adversity... Nathan is there, all the way to the end. Loyal, faithful, showing constancy and love. So Proverbs 17.17, just to return there, is telling us about what a friend is and what a friend does. A friend loves at all times. The second line is, and a brother is born 
for adversity. Uh, You might say, uh, so does that mean the brother is born to cause adversity? Because that's often the way it works. That's not what this is saying. Brother is born as a resource in adversity. So you can take this a couple of different ways. Is this saying a brother's better than a friend? If you're in the happy position that I'm in, where your brother is your friend, you don't have a problem. But what if your brother, or let's make it neutral, your sister, is not as supportive, constant, loyal, loving as you would hope they would be? What if they aren't that resource? Are we just sort of coming up short here? I got friends, but I just I wish I had a supportive family. Um, Part of what this proverb is reaching into is this issue that you can choose your friends to some extent, but you can't choose your family. And uh, yes, the way it should be is a brother should be more supportive than even friends. I think some of what this proverb is saying, brothers can be born out of friends in times of adversity. There's at least some hint of that, that that in some points of need, adversity, and trial, your friends leap to another level. Suddenly they become brothers or sisters, as the case may be. And that leads us to talk about a couple of issues here about the nature of friendship and family. Um, We've already commented on the fact that we're not very good with neighborliness and we're not very good with friends. Our friendships kind of lack the depth that, that would be good for us. And then we turn the page and start talking about family and then the complaining really starts, right? Because uh, that's, where, that's where all the dirty laundry is. And so this proverb touches on this issue. I want to give you a couple of goals to reach for in your family and in your friends' relationships. And we're going to call this cultivating. Cultivate friendships both inside and outside of your family. I'm using the word cultivate because you can't force cultivation. Cultivation is cooperative. You can put resources into the soil. You can till the soil. You can weed it. You can plant in the soil. But there's no button you can push that will make the crop grow. You're doing things with the land and with the seeds that cultivate them and the harvest comes later. So this is about spending a lot of time before you even see the beginnings of reward or blessing or growth. And it's about doing things with no guarantee of the outcome. That's what cultivation is. It's cooperative. You can't force it. There are no gimmicks. There are no substitutes. It's just long, patient, devoted work. What if we did this? What if we cultivated the warmth of friendship in our families? I'll tell you one of our goals... um, Bridget's and and my goals are to raise up friends. Uh, We have two boys, 11 and 16. And our goal has always been to raise them up as friends. And um, that goal really comes out of our marriage. Um, Our marriage is really about friendship. I would commend that to you. The, the best marriages are not 
necessarily a matter of spark or flame. The best marriages, in my view, are founded on friendship, companionship, conversation, affection, warmth, things, values held in common. Um, And if I can put it this way, liking each other. It's very easy to love someone, quote unquote, in the spark of sexual attraction. It's harder when times change and other priorities become as important or more important than sexual attraction. And it's at that point that in a marriage where you're, you're going to make a decision, I'm either going to deepen my friendship with this person or the spark's going to go out of this thing and we'll just chalk it up to the odds were against us. That's a decision you're going to make. It may be a decision that you have made. And it's very important to recognize having made a decision like that. And uh, so in our marriage, uh, it, it has always been founded and really grew out of friendship at the beginning. Lots of things held in common. Lots of things where we just like each other. We make each other laugh. Bridget makes me laugh all the time. And likewise. And no, I'm not going to tell any of those stories. Uh, But when you have that, you've got a, a broad foundation for growth. When you don't have that, you have to build it on the fly. And the Lord can do both. But if you cultivate that warmth inside your family, it is a very important source of strength. And so our resolution that we're raising up two boys to be our friends is a resolution that just comes right out of the way we relate to each other from the beginning. I don't want to raise up enemies. Nobody wants that. But we make decisions that contribute to that. Now, in saying we're, we're wanting to raise up two boys as friends, um, we're not uh, operating on the illusion that we can somehow not be parents and authoritative and training and all of those things. This isn't, this isn't a hippie household, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but nevertheless... Um, that authority, how, how we use that authority has to be aimed at something. It has to ha- be, be shooting for a target. And the target is that we would raise up, train up friends. And so uh, one of the biggest blessings of the last year was uh, to see Dylan reach uh, 15 and a half and get his driver's permit. And then we go out and, and learn to drive. And you're saying, no, that doesn't sound like a, a blessing at all. Uh, that, that sounds like a terrible thing. That's a terrible idea. You're not going to come out front. Look, we had more fun learning to drive than I ever expected. We were laughing all the time. We were, we were talking about all the different things that go on in traffic and... And we, we went to another level. And one of these days, Malcolm and I are going to do that. And we're going to be friends that way too. And so you, you don't have to set up an adversarial relationship in your household. And uh, it is a tremendous blessing. It's the great thing of my life to go home to friends. So I would encourage you as a goal, cultivate friendship in your home. Build that warmth in at home. It will help you. Secondly, 
Take the constancy and the loyalty of family. Because you, you can have brothers that are at each other's throats and trying to murder each other one minute, but somebody threatens the family or threatens one of the brothers, all bets are off. That fight is over. We'll resume that in a couple of weeks, but for now, we're going to kill the other guy. Uh, nothing unites brothers like an attack. And uh, so families are great for loyalty. Here's what we need to do. We need to bring the warmth of friendship into our families, and we need to bring the loyalty of families into our friendships. We need it badly. Because a fast friend is someone you can depend on, is someone you know is going to be there. You know, even when there is disagreement and conflict and confrontation, you know that it is going to be stronger on the other side because you know that friendship. Friends, you can build this. I will go even further. It is the will of God for our lives together that we build this because it is a source of strength and it glorifies him and it enriches us. So having said all of that, I'll just make one more comment about the poverty that we have. We're we're talking about warmth in friendship and loyalty in family, and we want to crossbreed those in this cultivation. We want to cultivate the warmth in our families, and we want to cultivate the loyalty in our friendships, but our poverty is in the Facebook age we don't have either one. And the source of pain and grief that, that this kind of topic raises is just the reality that we are impoverished this way. We don't have the depth and the warmth that we need. So I, the first thing I would say about this is, one, This is not a luxury in life. It's not a really nice thing if you have good friends. It's an essential thing. It's a need. Because without it, what is there left but the spiral of anxiety and depression? That feeling of isolation, no one gets me, no one cares. All of that kind of thing. We... Another way to to put this is we need to grasp the nettle, confront our suspicions, confront our fears, and embrace the will of God for us that we become a people characterized by friendship one to another and that these friendships extend out from this body. We can cultivate it, we can't control it, but the more we cultivate it with each other, the warmer we become toward each other and the more loyal we become toward each other. And who knows but that brothers and sisters will not be born in adversity out of that cultivation. So here are some, uh, some directions more specifically about this issue. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Jesus died for us and called us friends. Romans 12 says that because Jesus did that, because he paid for our sins and united us with him, Because of those things, we need to be transformed. Famous verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and so forth. Big stuff, right? Look at Romans 12.10. How, Paul? In in what ways, specifically, should we 
be transformed? Should our minds be renewed? Romans 12.10, love one another with what? Brotherly affection, brotherly love. That sounds so trite, Paul. It just sounds so, I don't know, not lofty. You say our minds are supposed to be transformed and we're supposed to be renewed in our minds. We're not supposed to conform to the world. We were expecting bigger directions than this, that we should just be affectionate toward each other and cultivate warmth and brotherly love. Can't you go deeper? You know what Paul would say to that? When we ask him across the centuries, can't you go deeper than brotherly affection? He would say, no, because look at what you are suffering without it. Look at the isolation, look at the alienation, look at the poverty of relationship without it. He's saying, stop being conformed to this world. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Love one another with brotherly affection or with kindly affection. And then he says this, outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine that. It's it's almost like the the, uh, comical situation. In in some cultures, they bow to each other and they they can't stop. One bows to the other, the other bows and... Who's going to, you know, it's it's like, when do you finally say goodbye on the phone? (laughs) Bye, yeah, bye, bye. Well, what if we outdid one another, striving to show honor, to build up, to add dignity? What if we did that? That would get real practical real fast. So here are two uh, ways to think about that. First, let's make the objective to add value to our relationships. Friends add value. They are not coming into our lives to take value. Friends add. They give. They... um, They bless. All of these things, that's the attitude of striving to outdo one another in showing honor. Um, uh, So one way to think about this is, in all of our relationships, let's be the people who add value. I know the objection... What if I add value and no value is added back? Well, that can be a problem. But there's another way to look at that. How will any value ever be added if no one starts? And that's the the ultimate thing. We have to decide to be friends if we want friends. And in order to cultivate that warmth, we we have to start. Let's add that value and let's be those people who do that. Second approach here would be to detach expectation. This is very important. Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sins and called us friends when we could not ever reciprocate. We cannot do for him what he has done for us. can't be done. And, yeah, thank you, Jesus, because that's what saves us. So the model that Jesus gives us of friendship is the model that says, I am giving what I can give. I am deciding to add value to this relationship. I'm deciding to give that, not because I'm expecting a reciprocation. I'm just giving it because... You are made in the image of God. You are valuable, and so I am going to add value in our relationship. The Lord will take care of me in that context. 
If we do these two things, I think we're going to see warmth grow, and I think we're going to see loyalty grow as well. These things are the foundations of health, life, and wisdom for us. So let's uh, pray together as we seek the Lord's wisdom about friendship. Father, uh, we come before you desiring the richness of friendship that you offer, but not necessarily knowing how to get it, how to attain it, how to cultivate it. We pray you would give us the wisdom that comes from your word alone. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bond us together in these very practical ways, that as you call us friends, that we would call one another friends and cultivate that love that loves at all times. We pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to take some time to answer some questions here. Um, If you need to slip out, this is a good moment to do that. Uh, Realize uh, this does add on some time to the service, but uh, nevertheless. Um, Let's see here. I have a friend met on Facebook uh, in a Christian music group. He and I talked through Messenger, found out very quickly that we both have chronic pain and illness. We also found it was safe to talk at a deeply personal level. We also talk at a deep spiritual level. I hope someday to meet him face to face. Yes, social media can be shallow, but as with anything else, there are exceptions. Am I fooling myself? No. Social media can add tremendous value to your life. And, uh, and that's the great thing about Facebook, is we can make fast friends who stick fast. And it is a, a powerful thing. Um, and so that's why I kind of don't want to rag on Facebook too terribly much, because it is um, an important thing. Uh, in Asian culture... Uh, the um, the way to outdo one another is by bowing lower than the other. I did not know that. That that would be an interesting uh, that would be an interesting competition. See, who who can who can go lower? Uh, <laughs> so there we are. I think that's uh, coming from our brother here, who has a lot of insight in Korean culture here. Um, should we add a sad picture for the selfie church directory? Uh, no, no. Let's, let's keep it happy. Let's put our best foot forward here. Uh, you're joking with me here. Time, time, time. Nobody has any. Most people lack time. Um, it's very true. What I have found is that I need to make time. Time is made, not had. Um, if you ask me, do I have time? Uh, the answer is no, I don't have time. Will I make time? Yeah, probably. You know, if, if there are priorities, and, and those priorities need to be dug into the schedule. And if it's not dug into the schedule, it's not a priority. And so part of what I have, have learned to do is say, look, God's got time just as he's got money and all the other resources that we need. And he controls how much time is eaten up by this or that. I've stopped worrying really about time because I know that uh, as I give things over to the Lord, He is going to make the time come out right. My job is to decide on the priorities. Uh, so uh, that is a key issue. In the book of Job, uh, there were men who came to Him in adversity. They were friends in the uh, were they friends in the nature of Nathan or foes? Uh, you know, the book of Job shows uh, Job's friends coming and they start off pretty well. They weep with those who weep. Uh, 
And then they start talking and it all goes downhill from there. Um, I think there's something to learn about the nature of friendship there. Friendship, if it is about making a point, is not going to be a very long-lasting or deep friendship without repentance from the need to make a point. Um, Friendship is about support, encouragement, accountability. They were trying to do that, but um, the the book of Job, which we will look at uh, uh, one of these days, about suffering and God's wisdom for suffering, the book of Job deteriorates into a bunch of lectures and speeches. And um, that's never a good sign for friendships. Uh, Should we consider covenants with friends? Worked for David and Jonathan... Uh, you know the uh, the covenant between David and Jonathan. They made a covenant together. We are for the Lord and we are for each other. And David honored the, that covenant down to uh, Jonathan's grandchildren. And it helped heal the nation of Israel in a powerful way. So uh, all of these things um, are very important aspects of friendship. We will continue on this subject, as I said, for about eight weeks. So uh, uh, let's close in prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, again, we ask you to do this work in our hearts. We pray that you would bond us together and form these bonds in us, even today, this afternoon, whether it be around watching a game or other activities, we pray that you would deepen our brotherly affection for each other and the loyalty that should go with it. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.